Before we get started with the show, we wanted to draw your attention to our crowdfunding page on Patreon. If you've been enjoying Always Take Notes, please do consider supporting us there. It helps us to keep the podcast going. If you support us on Patreon, you can get a great selection of rewards, including a shout out on the show and a selection of successful magazine pitches. Thanks to our latest donor, Ryan Hall. Ryan lives in Surrey with his wife and daughter. Uh, He's hoping to start writing long-form journalism or get into investigative journalism, and he's currently working on a novel. All the very best, Ryan. If you pledge $10 a month, you get a free two-month trial to Otter worth $26 alongside the other rewards. Otter offers automated transcription and live note-taking for in-person and virtual meetings. I found it to be a huge help when organising interview material. You also get access to a series of mini-episodes from previous guests on the show, in which they answer three revealing questions. The latest episode features Ferdy Addis, and here's a snippet. I've always struggled with procrastination. I find blank pages very daunting, um, the blinking of the cursor. So something I've had to work on for a long time is developing strategies to overcome that initial aversion. And the best strategy that I have found is to work in very, very tiny increments. Sometimes set myself as a goal to write a single word or to sit on a chair and just think about what I'm going to write for five minutes. And it sounds absurd, but these tiny little grains of sand do matter. Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, Rachel and myself spoke with Lenny Goodings, the chair of Virago Press. We spoke to Lenny about starting out at Virago, the intimacy of editing an author's work, and how the business of feminist publishing has evolved. It's a great episode and we hope you enjoy it. Welcome Lenny to Always Take Notes. It's fantastic to have you on the show. Like many of our guests, your interest in the written word seemed to have started when you were very young, as, as young as five, I believe, with the typo in a book. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes, I know. It just sounds amazingly precocious, doesn't it? Um, obviously, I didn't know it was called a typo, but I re- remember I was reading a, a picture book in bed and um, I discovered a mistake. It was probably an as or an and or, so, or it or something. It was just a two letter, little small thing. And um, I remember... Um, thinking, being really excited and also feeling like I was the only one who had discovered it. You know, I thought it was a private um, discovery that there was a mistake in this book. But what it really gave me a sense is, oh, there's humans behind a book. You know, I think up until even up at that age, you know, you just think books are, you know, they are a contained, finished item. I don't know where I thought they came from, but I never I didn't believe that a human being was behind them. So I, that was my um, first inclination that, uh, oh, People write these books. Of course, I thought the author had made the typo, not the typesetter. And um, it felt to me very exciting. But also I had this sort of feeling like I was slightly slipping between the printed lines. You know, so it was magic on many levels for me. Could we talk a bit more about then how you specifically got into publishing when you were a bit older? I read that you were working at a bookshop on Vancouver Island and you would have the, the reps from the publishing firms coming to talk. Is that right? Yeah, it's actually kind of the same sort of thing as suddenly seeing behind behind the book. I mean, I had no idea that there was a... I didn't understand creative industries at all, actually, but I certainly didn't understand a publishing industry, and they, even though I studied English literature and um, 
was obviously a big reader, but I didn't I didn't know that how books were made or I hadn't had any I didn't think about that. And then I worked in a bookshop called Borrow Grove, which was after um, the Jabberwocky poem was a sort of take on that. And it was run by an Englishman and he and his wife um, ran this very this small independent bookshop. And it, the reps used to come in and start and sell us books, of course. And that's, again, I suddenly thought, oh, it was a bit like the typo. I said, oh, wow, curtains were parted. And I suddenly thought, oh, there's obviously, you know, behind the books, there's a, not just authors, but a whole industry. So then when I came to London, my first thought was, I'd like to try and get into, into publishing. Because at that point, the Canadian publishing scene, which then became extremely exciting, but at that point, it was pretty much a case of importing um, so we had a lot of books to Canada that came from America or from from Britain. So the the Canadian publishing scene it wasn't terribly um, vibrant. But then after I left, it you know M Michael Ondaatje, Margaret Atwood, Alice Munro. You know it's an incredible um, number of authors who've come out of Canada. But then it was a bit quieter. And when I first so I can tell you so quiet that when I got to London, people would say to me, "Does Canada have a reading culture?" You know, we kind of we know Joni Mitchell, but you know, do, does anybody write books? Do you read books? You know, I have to say, British people were a little bit rude to about Canadian culture when I first got there. Yeah, there's a great quote in your book about the apple as well about Margaret Atwood saying that she was greeted with a sort of dead-eyed stare when people asked her about Canadian culture. But it was a Canadian book and a and a British book, I think, as well that sort of inspired your move to London. The British book was 84 Charing Cross Road by Helen Hanf, which is this wonderful story about a girl from the, from the New World writing to these old gentlemen um, booksellers at, uh, in a bookshop, 84 Charing Cross Road, which no longer exists. And um, they, it was during the war, and she started ordering books from them, and, then, and they got interested in her, and then she'd send care packages back and forth. Anyway, so it made me, I felt, I identified very much with that New World girl. Um, and then the other book was um, by a Canadian woman, Margaret Lawrence, who's not very well known in um, the UK, sadly, L-A-U-R-E-N-C-E. And she wrote many books. One of them was called The Diviners. And in The Diviners, um, she has, she, the young woman has this, she has two relationships. One is with a sort of backwards, um, heroic sort of man of little words. And the other one is with an intellectual. And she's going back and forth, deciding which one to go, go with. And I was slightly in the same position. And um, I said, in the end of her book, she just she drops them both and goes to London. And I thought, well, I'd do that too. <laughs> so, you know, it was this was in the end of the seventies. And even though I was, I had crossed Canada. I had worked in a bookshop. I thought of myself as an independent woman. I still had the idea that I would be defined by my man, you know, that I, you know, whoever I married, whoever I was with, partner with, whatever, would dictate my life, you know. I, I hadn't, you know, chucked that idea deeply internally, even if I had intellectually. And so it was quite a, it was a good, you know, flashpoint for me thinking, uh-uh, no, actually, you don't have to attach yourself to somebody to have the adventure or to, make, to define yourself. You do it yourself. And, you know, that, so that was pretty profound for me, I have to say. And is it correct that when you got to London, you ended up working on a biography of the Queen and then decided you had to find another line of work? Yes, that's right. So I sort of wandered around London. I was very naive 
um, you know, I would even knock on doors. I, and um, I just, I, I thought that's how you got jobs, actually, to be honest. Actually, I did get a few jobs that way. Um, but the, my, one of my first jobs was working for a publicity company. And we, it was sort of, again, it was sort of as the book trade was changing, you know, you know, it, at the book trade at that point, when it did advertising, for example, it didn't rarely mention the price because it was thought vulgar to mention that books cost money. So it was a very gentleman's profession. And um, I got a job working for a publicity company, and that was a new idea that books and that authors could be their own promoters. You know, that the personality of an author would start selling the book. It was a fairly, it was a newish idea for the book trade, not for the rest of other creative industries. And so I worked on a book by Robert Lacey. It was called Majesty. So it was Biography of the Queen, that's right. And so I worked with that, with that company for about a year. But it was at the same time that everything was really happening politically. You know, people, there were marches in the street. I had by this time ended up living in a sort of cooperative house. I was reading Spare Rib. All, and I, I saw, you know, feminism and politics was so much in the air in my normal life, but not at my job. And so I thought, yeah, I got it. I've got to go in. I've got to get a job that is more, more to the point, really. And... I thought, yeah, and I believed that books could change the world. So I do still believe that. And so I sought out other places. And I went to Writers and Readers, Publishing Cooperative, and to Virago. And you started at Virago in 1978, part-time. I was interested to see in your book that you kept a, version, a copy of the letter that you sent to Carmen Clill, sort of offering your publicity services. I'm guessing then you knew at the time that this was going to be something quite revolutionary and special. Um, actually, Carmen kept it. No, I didn't. She kept it and gave it to me after a, a certain amount of time. Um, so she knew you were something special. <laughs> well, I don't know. She she keeps everything, so I may, maybe she thinks I'm special. Um, I had an inkling that it was uh, that it was going to be a powerful organization. Yes, I remember because I I originally came to Britain thinking I would stay for one year and you know do anything that was a sort of wild card sort of feeling and then I'd come back to Canada go back to Canada and um, get a proper job so I I remember I wrote to my parents after I got to Virago and said I think this is quite important this this organization I think I'm going to stay a bit longer so um, yeah I did have a sense I mean unsurprisingly you know the the letters and the kind of the response we were getting from the press, you know, it made you realize that actually this this was, you know, there were a lot of um, small and radical presses at the time. So Virago wasn't alone, although it was one of the first feminist ones. But it made you realize it, just the sort of the way it attracted both, um, you know, people who put it down and, and the way it attracted writers and the way it attracted librarians and booksellers, etc. You could just see that, yeah, it, it, it was a catalyst, really, I would say. And um, it was really, that was exciting. Very, very hard work, it has to be said, but also very exciting. I was interested that Carmen was Australian and you, you're obviously Canadian. How important do you think it was, your, that kind of outsider perspective coming in in terms of getting Virago off the ground? And how were you and, and also her perceived by, as you say, this, this pretty old school British publishing firmament at that time? I think the, the fact that Carmen started is Australian and started Virago is absolutely in, um, interrelated. You know, I, I think she got very fed up with the sort of old boys 
network of publishing. Um, she she got sacked something like three times before. Um, she just didn't didn't manage very well working for other people. And um, also, I feel she thought that she she was very involved with the underground through um, press, through ink and places like that, and uh, Oz, the radical magazines of the time. And she was very conscious that it what was being listened to were men's political voices, not women's political voices. And that even, you know, that's a famous, those are famous um, observations, aren't they? That even in those kind of places, the women still did the uh, typing and made the tea. And so she was uh, determined, you know, to set up something that had, where women's voices were heard. So I think the fact she was Australian was, yes, was important. I think there was an idea that you could start something new, um, that um, that there was something to be thrown off. Um, and I felt that too. I have to say, you know, as I say, part of it was naivete, not really under, not reading the British runes very well, to be honest. Um, but also, the, I feel, you know, if you come from a country like Canada or Australia, you're still in a place where things are still happening. You know, you're still making traditions. You're still, there are still new things. You know, there's a very, sorry to be too cliched about it, but there's a bit of a frontier spirit sort of feel. And so I, I think that did matter. Um, but there were other, I mean, Ursula Owen, who um, was the other key person at um, Virago, she is a, she was a German, she was born in the UK, but she's a German refugee, her family were German refugees. So again, you had an outsider feeling. And I think, you know, the feeling of, um, I would say it's about not having the fear, you know, and partly it's not knowing enough, frankly, but it's also just not having the fear of, um, of, of the systems, of the class systems. I mean, you know, I, it's a really nice thing to be able to be a North American in, um, Britain, because people can't read your accent, you know, they can't put you in a place right as soon as you open your mouth. And and that's a great advantage in, in uh, your country, I have to say. I mean, I consider it my country now too, but you know, I, even now I can slide through and people don't know quite who or where I'm from. When you joined Virago full time in 1979, you were the publicity director, uh, or the publicity, publicity manager, sorry. Um, what were some of the things that you were doing as part of that role? Was it accompanying authors on tours or I think I read in your book that one of that you didn't have quite the budget to accompany someone so you were kind of ringing up and organizing it remotely that's that's absolutely right so when we um when I did Majesty for example there were you know a publicist and a publisher came and we had fabulous cars and hotels and things like that and um, the first book I did for publicity for Virago was uh, Make It Happy Sex Education for uh, teenagers by Jane Cousins and we had no budget you know I just had to send her off on the road all by herself and that that was I mean people can she's grown up she could manage but it was a totally different way of doing things and everything had to be done in a one small room um we didn't you know it was the early early version of open plan so all conversations all my selling and my pitching of of books no email of course everything was done by telephone or letter so everything was very uh, shared and public. Um, it was uh, it's a different way of doing things. It it was it was exciting though. As I say, there there was a combination of people wanting Virago and another another you know the press. Press is always quixotic. It loves the new things. It loves to run it down. It loves to build it up. And we we were definitely part of that. You know we were called paper tigresses. But then at the same time, we had we would get um, a lot of publicity, although I remember re reading ringing The Guardian once 
and ask, is trying to sell um, an author to them. And they said, we had a woman author on these pages last week. Yeah, so it, 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 the world has changed. <laughs> is it right that you first met Margaret Atwood in, in the, around this time as well, in the late 70s? And then could you tell us a bit about what that initial meeting was like and then about how your, your kind of creative relationship with her has has developed since then. I thought the the chapter you sent us about this this extraordinary meeting where she calls in her people to you know to go over the novel was was fascinating. I'd love to ask about that maybe a little bit further on. But take us back to that first meeting that you had with her. So I I as I say in my book, um, I first met Margaret Atwood on the page. So I was about fourteen and I found um, the animals in that country a book of poetry because she wrote poetry first. And I found that first, and I remember giving a presentation to the to my class and saying, "I think this woman's going to be important, and she's Canadian, and she's a female." You know, all of these things were very exciting and dramatic to see uh, to see that publication. Um, so, and then I studied her at university. So, and then I, when I went to Virago, then suddenly we were publishing her. So we published Surfacing and uh, Lady Oracle. And Edible Woman is her Edible Woman is her first book, and um, she came to the office, and there I was suddenly to be the person taking her around, you know, Britain, and also I didn't know Britain very well myself by that time, but she. So I was very, even by then I had met some quite famous people that Virago published, and so I, you know, I I was, casual, you know, okay meeting famous people, but meeting Margaret Atwood for me that was it's like meeting the Queen for us Canadians. <laughs> And um, suddenly to be in charge of her was, was very, very exciting. And she was great. She was funny. She was funny. She's a very, very funny woman, very droll. Um, you know, there's, I think, so, you know, her sort of reputation is that she's quite tough, um, especially to journalists. But the fact is, what she is, is she's very clever and she's very on it and she doesn't like sloppy thinking. And, you know, she, it's, she does, it's, there's a version of her not suffering fools, but basically she's just pushing you to, you know, be sharper and not ask sloppy questions, and, and to know everything, and to know everything. I remember one time she said to us, when do the books, what date do the books leave the warehouse? And I thought, oh my God, I've never been asked that question before by an author. You know, she's, she's across the entire industry, which is really impressive. Really, she's certainly one of the most clever people I've ever met. But also, she's very DIY. So, you know, she, she in fact, she made some of her first jackets, not for us, but for Anansi when she published here, in, in, published in Canada. And um, with uh, letter set dots, um, she also would accompany me um, when we carried around books. She was fine carrying her own books. She would say things like, um, and, you know, I'm a person who's, who used to you know, pull my books, my poetry books on a sleigh across snow, you know, <laughs> to poetry readings in the northern Ontario. So, you know, she's really, she's very game. I, I really love that aspect of her. So it, we quickly, you know, became... Uh, friendly. I mean, she's, she didn't, um, she was very welcoming to me. I'm very excited that, you know, there was a Canadian in her British publishing house, I think. And uh, we've gone on knowing each other. And I, t I told you that I inspired one of her stories. Maybe you'd like to ask me about that later. Yeah. Would you like to t tell us, um, obviously you've told us ahead of this recording, but please tell our listeners about this extraordinary story and how it ended up in one of her, one of her short tales. So she's it, the story is called The Whirlpool, and it's in her collection called Bluebeard's Egg. And it's the story that I told her once when we were on a long train journey. It was in the days when the train from London to Glasgow, we were going up there for book readings. It took eight hours to do those train journeys in those days. 
And uh, so it was a long time to have lots of conversation. And so I told her the story, which is when I was in university, um, my, some friends of mine were involved in a, um, a sort of a raft ride, a, a raft ride in the Whirlpool Rapids below Niagara Falls. And I had grown up, again, this is me, I devoted to seeing my life through books. I'd, one of my favorite books as a child was Daredevils of Niagara. And I grew up near Niagara Falls. And so, you know, you could go under the falls, you could do Made of the Mist, all sorts of things. And, um, you know, we've all been fascinated by that. And Blondin went across on, on a tightrope. So when my friend said that they were working for this travel company and there was a new ride which was going to go on a rubber raft, 40 foot long rubber raft, and ride through the Whirlpool Rapids. So there's the falls and then there's a bit of river and then there's this pool called the Whirlpool Rapids. So if you look down on it, it looks like a boiling pot of water. And that's, so we, we, we got on this raft, 40 of us, and took off. And unbeknownst to us that the, the uh, river is, the Niagara River is also part of uh, ways we get power. Of, and they had opened, they control the water. And that day, not knowing that this raft ride was being trialed, they had opened the gates, so more water came out than normal. And we were riding the rafts and it was exciting. And then suddenly we looked up and there was a 30 foot wave in front of us. And so we rode the raft, rode up the wave. And then of course it couldn't go any further. So it just flipped over. And um, the woman behind me drowned and two other people drowned. But obviously I got to the edge as did my friends, which was extraordinary. And I did think I was gonna drown because in the middle of that rapids whirlpool. So. Anyway, I told all of that to Margaret Atwood, and at the end, we we're on this train ride. She said, "Can I have that story? Um, you don't often get urban disasters." And I said, "Yeah, you can have that." And about a year later, I read the story, and what was extraordinary? She took no notes, and we were on that train for another at least another four hours, and everything I had said, all my dialogue, all you know, obviously how I felt, she could pick that up, but actually what I had said, what I had said, I had thought while I was going to drown was all there. So for a Canadian be in her story, it's pretty good. Were you struck by her asking permission? I mean, it seems that, you know, obviously this issue of, of how writers assimilate material from their lives and, and what the, the kind of ethical approaches are to that. Do you, were you surprised that she'd asked you for, for permission or is that her, her way of operating or what, how did you, how did that fit into the Piece. I don't know if that is her way of operating, but I mean, it was so particular. You couldn't, you you know, I mean, there's how many, that's the only raft ride that's crashed in the, in the Whirlpool Rapids. So, you know, you couldn't, she couldn't just nick it. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely right. The, the, it's a good question about writers, because I think writers can be quite unscrupulous, to be frank, you know, that they, you know, that they're, um, I mean, most, most writers will admit this, won't they, that they sit in terrible places and all, and what they're thinking, and terrible moments, and what they're thinking is, what does this feel like? How can I use this? You know, even Margaret Atwood has a very funny line, which is, which she says came from Alice Munro, I think, which is when anything's bad, or you know, like as you know, when you take people on tour, I can tell you things very, very bad things happen. Like, I mean, not crisis, but terrible things like awful food, and people haven't read the book, and you know, trains are missed, and all that stuff. And she'd always go, never mind, Lenny, it's all material. You know, so it's all all you know being fed into the stories and how how you write, but I do think writers can be quite rapacious, absolutely. And sometimes, I'm a bit shocked myself when I'm editing, and I say to people, especially when they're writing memoirs, 
does your family know? Have they read this? You know, it's, it's, you know, what goes in print? I think it's very interesting about memoirs because, and even I've done it myself, you know, writing my bite of the apple, which is that what you set down in print becomes the truth, even though everybody knows it's just your opinion, isn't it? It's your recollection. And you'll know too yourself when you talk to your family, when your one sister brother says such and such, and you think, wow, that's so not how it happened. You know, so, you know, you've always got these different interpretations of how it felt, but when it goes down into print, it locks it, you know, that becomes the story. And I I think that's the a danger and it, that memoirs need to be alive to, but in some ways there's nothing you can do about it. Of course, it is your opinion, but you do need to be alive to the fact that you're, you know, sort of trampling all over everybody else's life as well, on, on, on route to, you know, finding yours. It's a... It's a tricky thing. People say they don't want to be around authors or sometimes they you know, will say, um, is that going to go in your story? Although sometimes people want to be in a story <laughs> and then are sad if they're, le- if they're left out. But it's, uh, wh- where else do you get your ideas from? I mean, I've been very interested listening to a few people writing about, talking about what it's like having been in lockdown and so that you've lost, you know, you've lost that extra stimulus because, of course, you think writers would be the ultimately easy ones with lockdown, wouldn't they? They're used to sitting in a room alone with no stimulation. But actually, of course, they're not. That's where they do their work. But then they go out. They sit on buses. They overhear things. They, you know, you you meet people, whatever. And you realise that actually you need a lot of stimulation to be a writer. Yeah, as you say, to pick up those sort of character details and, and find inspiration for little little anecdotes and side plots um to return briefly to virago uh well i suppose not briefly but um could we talk about the arc of your career how you went from publicity manager to marketing director and then to publisher um and we'll get on to your work as chair later but what was that journey like and also how easy was it and then you said that the work was hard but how easy was it in those early days to make a living i read that you were your salary was three thousand five hundred pounds and you and it was not particularly easy to make and to be on that you know, in even to this day, publishing is not well paid. Um, so I, that that hasn't changed all that much. You know, entry points in in uh, publishing is still around twenty seven thousand. So you know that you're not going to uh, you. That's a a great flaw of publishing, because of course, who can live on twenty seven thousand pounds? You know, somebody who either. You know, in our, in my case, I was living in um, well the the equivalent then. I was living in a a squat. I was living with a boyfriend. You know, you there were other, you had to you couldn't live you couldn't be independent um, on those kinds of salaries. Or you know, as you know, mummy and daddy the mummy and daddy bank. You know, and who gets who gets to to have that kind of support? Um, that that is a problem in publishing, definitely. Um, I went from in terms of you know switching careers within careers, as it were. Um, it's, there are pe- people do move from publicity to um, editorial, um, less so. Publishing is oddly quite siloed, you know, that people who start in marketing and publicity find it sometimes difficult to move across to editorial, um, if that's what they want. Uh, in a smaller company like mine, um, you, know, because I, you know, because it was small, we're all in the same room, you kind of knew everything anyway, even if you weren't actually doing the job. So, and I think moving pub- publicity. So, what is publishing? Publishing is really is publicity. It is marketing. Of course, it's 
editing the book and that's a different thing which I'd love to talk about because I do I'm very um, passionate about editing but in actual publishing is you know what how do you how are you going to present it what does the jacket look like what's the title you know what signals are you giving to the people that what category is this book in that's all publicity and marketing whoever does the job that could be the md thinking up that kind of stuff or it could be the marketing and sales people but you know publishing is about presentation isn't it and then even things like what price is it you know because again you know how you're pitching it mat- matters even small things like prices or big things like prices, promotions, etc. Title really, really matters, especially now, more, more than anything else. When people buy so much online, the title really has to tell you, do a lot of the job. So I had, I suppose I had that kind of, I already had that thinking. You know, I was very closely involved with what we were publishing, how we were publishing. Um, so I already had all that thinking. So what I had to do, the transition I had to do, was then to work on the text. And, and that obviously is... That's a different talent uh, and a different um, skill, for sure. But I, I think, I believe, it's difficult if you've got a brand new author who needs a, not, a lot of help, then you do really do have to be quite skilled and you have to be versed in your trade. But I think most good authors don't, they don't need a lot of editing. What they need is a lot of reflection. You know, they need, they need to hear back from you you know, like I, I call myself like super reader is how I would, I would characterize what an editor is on that front. You know, and I'm holding up my hands because it's like, it is like a mirror. So you're giving back to the author. You're saying, you know, a combination of, of reading carefully so that you think, when, am I bored? Am I, this is me as editor, am I bored? Am I interested? Am I confused? Um, am I disappointed? You know, you're keeping alive all of those high, you know, the kind of stuff you feel as a reader anyway, but I'm, when I'm editing, I'm keeping those right up to the fore and making notes that, oh, you know, I'm now lost. And now, or I don't, I'm sad I lost that character. I don't understand that character. So that's the kind of editing you do with somebody who is, who is a skilled writer. So you're not actually doing line-by-line editing with somebody like that. But you're, you know, with someone like Sarah Waters, for example, when I edit her, that's the kind of thing. You just sort of think, oh, I didn't understand the motivation there or... Um, or oh, I did like that character a lot and felt very disappointed when they went away. You know, could is there a way of drawing them back in? Or, or and one of the first things I often do with an author, even if they are um, skilled and um, uh, accomplished, is say to me, say to them, tell you tell me what this book is about, because that's where you can see the often the gap comes between what was in their head and what has made it to the page, and you know. I remember talking to one person who said, I think this is about two sisters. And I said, that's lost. You know, the, the idea that there are two sisters, this, this book is about two sisters, is not coming through. If you want that, we've got to bring that up to the fore. Um, so that's the kind of editing conversation that you have um, with somebody who's, who knows what they're doing. And, you know, I think you have to, you have to trust an author, you know, because you're just, you are ultimately just one person reading. I mean, unless you've got a team of editors, which I will tell you about, Simon, um, unless you get a team of editors, you are just one person. And it is my belief is that it's the author's names on the book, not yours, not you, the editor. And also the world is littered with uh, stories of editors who said such and such, um, who got it wrong, you know, even 
as you, I'm sure you know that, you know, someone like J.K. Rowling had her books turned down by 10 different publishers before somebody took it. So you do have to be conscious as an editor of your, um, your blind spots, your flaws, and also who you are. You know, I'm a white middle-aged woman. I need to know, I know, I need to be alive to what that means that I know about the world, you know. Just following up from your previous question about kind of the business of publishing and, and how it works, I was wondering if you could explain a bit more about that, and particularly a couple of things. Well, firstly, to what extent is it a hits business and that a few successes kind of subsidize the, the rest of the operation? And then the other was the kind of evolution of, of the business side in, in the time you've been in the business, and particularly how the of the, the expenditure of a publishing firm, how does that divide between physically printing the books, between paying staff, between rights and things like that, and paying writers? And, and how has is, how is those elements evolved in the time you've been in the trade? So in publishing, the same as any creative industry, film, theatre, music, I suspect too, um, is very dependent on a few few hits, definitely. It is a hits... It doesn't portray itself as a hits business because... You know, we, we don't know where the hit's going to come, <laughs> for one thing. So it's, you know, you, you, you have no idea that suddenly, you know, a science fiction title or whatever is going to suddenly take off. A, a book I published a, at least 20 years ago called Girl Interrupted by Susanna Kaysen has suddenly been taken up by uh, the TikTok generation. So suddenly that's, uh, that is started to selling, so it's starting to sell again. So you have no idea, you know, it's, it's where, where things are going to pop up. So you're hoping, you put it out, you believe in the book, you do your best, it, you, you make it as good looking and with the best title and the best editing you can possibly do, and then you just sail it out there and you hope, that's where you, you kind of hope it gets taken up. And as I say, it's so arbitrary sometimes where, where hits come from. But most publishing, as I say, most creative industries are built on something like 80% of the books we publish either break even or lose money, and 20% are carrying the can. Um, but as I say, it's not, you know, you could sit here and say, oh, definitely J.K. Rowling is carrying the can for, for and it is, she obviously is for lots of people. But as I say, you, you have no idea something else can pop up and suddenly be a hit for a year or something and, and, and manage. One, one of my our best selling books from our backlist is, called, is by a woman named Marguerite van Geldermassen, who wrote a book called Married to a Bedouin. So. And it does does extremely well. So you never know. And that's why you have to publish a broad range of books, actually. Um, in terms of how the business has evolved um, since I came in to publishing, it's, I would say it's become more, it's, it is sadly more based on, on hits, to be honest. And because of the online, um, the, the fact that most books are bought online now, and I don't mean just during COVID times, but so how, you know, the whole, there's this awful word called discoverability, which is awful actually, but anyway, discovering books. Um, it, you know, you don't, on the whole, you don't browse online, do you? I mean, you might, you'd follow like, you know, Nigella Lawson tweets, again, she's another person, who, good influencer. If she tweets something, you know, you might go and follow, find that book. But you, you're unlikely to go online and just wander around, are you, in the way that you do in a bookshop. So the serendipity and the, and the kind of localized, I think, is the other thing that's really gone. So when I first came into publishing, for example, there was, a alternate, there was the bestseller list, but there was also an alternative bestseller list. And that was um, a whole, there were a whole range of bookshops in the UK. There were probably 
200 maybe, who identified themselves as either independent or radical. So, and they would feed into this uh, alternative book selling. Or you could have a Scottish bestseller, or you could have an Irish bestseller, whatever. And that that is, you know, like every bit of globalization, that's kind of flattened out in in a way. And I think you know that's sad, and that makes it harder. It makes it harder to launch new voices because they've got to, You've got to get them up there pretty fast, otherwise they do just remain down in, in the in the shallow end of um, of selling. Um, I th I think that's sad. The other thing that went, sorry to be very technical, is the net book agreement. So there was a net book agreement in the UK, um, which went in ninety five, I think, and um, that was uh, a. A, a law that said each book had to be sold by, by at the same price. So what that meant was, um, it wasn't obviously not free market, um, but basically, so a little corner shop was selling, you know, the latest um, Robert Harris at the same price as Amazon was selling it. Well, it was pre-Amazon, but, and, you know, Waterstones. Um, and when that law went in favor of thinking that consumers would have a better deal if, you know, uh, retailers could put um, promotions and price in price um, price promote that again that again pitched it to the best sellers obviously so what gets discounted you know who can sell the big books is it again it gets much more monolithic so you know I, I think there there are many things that are terrific about um, online book selling obviously because it reaches more people um, online marketing etc due to but you, you it also has its losses it definitely has its has its negatives and um, I would say launching new voices and being attentive to local um, or regional publishing sorry is what I meant by that um, I would say those are losses on the other hand there's nothing like a publishing industry that you know it's like phoenixes it's so it rises and falls all the time and now you see a lot of small publishing houses don't you I mean they're they will be finding it difficult to manage because they will probably be in a back room it's probably you know it'll be people doing it for the love of it they probably are not paying themselves they might pay an assistant um you know the the whole industry is it's if you think what a book costs to buy 7.99 8.99 10.99 and that's not changed you know you look look on your bookshelves and you'll see a book that you bought sort of 10 years ago might have been 6.99 Meanwhile, everything's gone up, you know, wages, salaries, wages, sorry, salaries, um, paper price, etc. So it and it's a very small unit, isn't it? And, you know, nine, eight, ninety nine is, is not a big amount of money to be um, basing a whole industry on. So the result of all that is uh, published uh, authors don't make a lot of money. Um, so they get 10 percent, roughly 10 percent of the retail price um, that so that could be a pound a book it could be you know eight eighty nine p something like that so you can see that this is why um you know the publishers association and the authors association do do um surveys and they discover that most authors are making something like four thousand pounds a year so it's not it's not a good career choice it's you most authors have to have other things going and something like on the Virago list, I would say there's probably about four or five authors who can live on writing and the rest have other have to have other income. A message from our sponsor, Vitsu. Martyr's story. 
If only each shelf could talk, reflected Marta, a Vitsu customer since 2004. Her shelving system began modestly and has grown over the years. It travelled with her from London to Valencia and now Amsterdam. This is the fifth time Marta has bought from Vitsu. Every time, she speaks with her personal Vitsu planner, Robin, who reorganised her bookshelves to fit her Spanish walls and her Dutch hoose. He even sent her extra packaging to protect her shelves with each move. You might say that their relationship has become a friendship over the years. Marta knows she is valued and trusts the advice Robin gives. If your shelves could talk, what would they say? Vitsu's 606 Universal Shelving System is a modular, adaptable kit of parts. It can form the perfect home for your books and even the desk from which to write one. Visit vitsu.com, V-I-T-S-O-E.com or request a free brochure via email at vitsu.com by quoting ATN 606. Vitsu, makers of long living furniture by Dieter Rams. talk now about uh, your work as an editor um, in your book you compare it to being a midwife and to being a therapist um, could you tell us a little bit about that I'm particularly interested I'm not sure you'll tell us but I'm particularly interested in the author that uh, threw their marked up manuscript out of the window onto the street <laughs> um, it's um, I mean I've called that the chapter in my book the intimacy of editing because I, I think revealing your writing, you know, oft, often I will be the first one. Sometimes people give to their partners, um, but sometimes that's not that's not a very um, great area. You know, if you want to keep your relationship alive, you may not may not hand them hand them your creative work actually, because you don't want to hear what unless they say it's brilliant. It's all downhill after that on the whole. Um, so you're sometimes I'm receiving something for the first time. It's very. I think writing is very exposing. I mean, I think you can you know, what I also say in the book too, is I feel like you can tell who an author is through their writing. You know, even if they're writing fiction, you can see what their concerns are, can't you? You can see what their sensibility is. I'm not going to say you can tell whether they're a nice person or not, but sometimes you can, <laughs> I think. Um, so I feel it's a very, um, it's a very exposing um, process of showing your writing for the first time to somebody and then because you're asking them for a critical feedback you know you kind of yeah is this you I mean obviously you're asking the basic thing is it good enough but if as an editor you have to be you have to slightly read through that I mean I'm editing something right now for example which you know I can see the beginning is very flawed I'm not going to tell you what it is but I the beginning is very flawed but I can I can also see I can sort of see through it, you know what I mean? It's like seeing through the lines in a funny way. I can see, yes, if we just shift this slightly, um, if we have a slightly different perspective, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to say the whole thing is terrible. It's definitely not, but it needs a little rejig. So I think that is, you're, you're asking the author to trust you. You're asking the author to trust your judgment, but also to trust your confidence. You know, so as I say, I'm not going to tell you who that person is. Um, you are asking them, you're often asking people to dig deeper, and that, especially around memoir, you know, I've often found, for example, that there will be something missing in the memoir. You, I think, ah, I just can't entirely, this doesn't make sense, it either the motivation doesn't make sense, or or, you know, the weight that you're giving this doesn't make sense. So you have to ask, and that's where the therapist slightly comes into, you know, 
you know, I have to say to an author, look, I'm not saying you have to put this in the book, but I need to understand what is at the heart of this? You know, what, you know, is there, you know, I, I worked with somebody who just, who finally said that her mother really suffered from some mental, mental illness challenges, but she didn't want to write about that. So, but I had to, I had to get that information so that we could make a, you know, we could make a, make the puzzle work, basically. Um, the reason I also said it was like a therapist is because you're intensely at certain times, you know, you are intensely speaking to somebody, you know, once a week, even whatever, and sort of d digging deep. But, you know, I mean, I'm saying all this as if it's just one way. It's not. I mean, the author has to decide if they don't want to do that. You know, they can say, actually, no, um, I don't I don't want to tell you or I, I don't want to go there or whatever. And, and if they don't want to go there, completely fine. But then we have to work out a way, you know, to make sense why you know that the that the reader is going to find a hole in that that thinking too um but i think um it's a great joy you know it's a real pleasure that to be able to work with clever people <laughs> it has to be said clever creative people i you know you must find it yourself doing doing this podcast you know how thrilling is it to get up close to people who are who are trying to do something different or thinking differently and prepared to to take you along with it, you know, and to to for you to enjoy it. And I think it's different. Journalism obviously has a version of this, and certainly you will have this with your podcast because you're asking good, intense questions. But with a writer, you're with them. You know, you're with them. You could be with them for years, but when on a book, you're with them for years as well. But, you know, someone like Linda Grant, I published, we worked out the other day, I think we've been together for something to 20, over 20 years. So that's, that's a nice, important relationship and one that comes of great trust. And, you know, she, she says, I just cringe when we get together, Lenny, and then you show me your man, my man, manuscript bristling with yellow post-its. Like, oh my God. I said, but I know you're right, so it's okay. <laughs> you know, kind of, and then we have a, we have a sort of horse trading. With Linda Grant, I have slightly horse trading, so I say, I'm not sure about that. And she goes, I want that. And I say, okay, you can have that, but what about this? You know, so, so it's, um, you know, but you have to have trust for that. My God, you know, that has to build up. You couldn't, you know, when you first start working with somebody you've never worked before, it really is, it's a bit like um, going into cold water or something, you know, to I me, mean, you have to go really, really gently in case you, you, you step wrong. Because as I say, it's a, it's a very exposing, precious piece of work. You've, they've handed you their baby and you start saying, well, I don't like the way the ears are. You know, <laughs> that's, that's kind of, what are you going to do? Pull the baby back, aren't you? So. Could you tell us, um, coming back to what I mentioned earlier, this extraordinary uh, Margaret Atwood kind of meeting with, with her editors, plural, in Canada, just for, for people who haven't read the, the wonderful account of it you, you give, could you tell us a little bit about, about that and then about how typical or otherwise her her approach to editing do you think is with compared to other writers you work with i mean lots of editors have more than you know, if you've got a, a international relationship mainly the english language I'm, I'm going to talk about so you might have a a british editor and a canadian editor and american editor sarah waters does sarah denant does for example too and so that is it has to be a bit collaborative you know, that that all the editors, you know, usually you get a primary editor, but all the editors can feed in if the author wants that. And you listen always to the author as to what they want. So Margaret Atwood had, I don't think she does this anymore, but she did have a system because she had a lot of editors. She had, because she had paperback editors, hardback editors, Canadian editors, American, British, etc. So she came up with this idea that everybody 
would read her read the manuscript and then meet and I went with the the manuscript the manuscript I got involved with became the year of the flood which is part of the Orcs and Crake trilogy and um, she invited us all to Toronto and it was winter it was very cold and um, we all came they we came to a hotel and we'd had a little bit of the manuscript before um, which I had read on the way over uh, on the airplane. And then when we got there, the rest was handed to us. And there, I think there were, between the agents, I think there were about eight of us, actually. Um, and each of us had were given a box with the manuscripts. It's very particular to Margaret Atwood, I'm going to say. Nobody operates like this. Um, but anyway, each one of us were given a box, and the box was a different color for each of us. Mine was green and with green ribbon on it. And, um, and then we had a little goodie bag, and the goodie bag had cough drops and chocolate bars and whatever. And then and we were each presented it in, in, the, in the dining room, and then it was like, go. <laughs> she, she, didn't, she wasn't there. That was her agent giving it to us, and it was then go. And so we went, we shot each one of us to our bedrooms and um, read the manuscript and then met at the end of it as the editors and met and discussed it. And then the next day, Margaret came over um, through the snowy streets of Toronto. I remember she arrived all, you know, red cheek because it was very, very cold and up into this room. And her um, agent at the time said, I think we should light a candle. We were in a hotel. We should light a candle because this is an auspicious meeting of her editors and everything. So we lit the candle. Of course, the um, smoke detector went off and the fire engines came. <laughs> so that started off the, the meeting. And then she just sat and listened. It was like going to um, a seminar on an author with the author there. And she asked very, uh, we, we gave our sort of presentation, as it were. And then she asked questions. And then she just, and she took notes. And then she took those notes, went away, and we had supper. And um, the editing comments we had made definitely, you know, were taken in. And, uh, but it's very unusual. Nobody. I've no. I don't know anyone else who does who conducts um, that gets editors to to have an opinion like that. I mean, that many editors, but also in, in one room. It was um, it was exciting, but also it gave another because you know. I mean, we're all human, aren't we? So there there was a sort of it, you felt a slight competition. Can I read fast enough? Am I clever enough? <laughs> you know, kind of. Is that other editor smarter than me? Does she know more? <laughs> you know, kind of. All that that was uh, a, a new play, on the. Uh, on the way of editing too. I was wondering whether there was a kind of race to finish first. <laughs> well, weirdly, I don't read very fast, but I read very fast and I did, I was one of the early finishers actually. And other people said they hadn't quite finished. And I thought, oh, am I showing off? Did I read it closely enough? You know, kind of all this sort of stuff it was funny. Could we talk um, a little bit about how your editing duties fit in with your role as chair and what, uh, what the differences between chair and publisher are? Well, I think it's quite particular to Virago, to be honest. I don't. I think there's other forms of chair that, you know, I, I not even every publishing house is, has it. But my feeling was, I've been there a long time, as you know, and I felt, you know, one of the one of the things you have to do as publisher, I've always had two P's for for um, in my mind. One is profit, obviously, and the other is profile. And, you know, that you've got to make sure as a publisher that you're, especially when you're a publishing house like Virago, which is, you know, sort of reflecting back or trying to advance politics of, of um, sexual politics and gender politics, um, you've got to be alive to what's happening. So my feeling was that we needed a younger 
um, publisher to come in. So uh, Sarah Savitt is the Virago publisher now, and she's f uh, just 40. And we've got a lot of younger people too. But you know, you need, but I also believe you need the broad range. So me still there doing my authors. So I, I don't commission authors anymore, but I still have my stable of authors, which, you know, Atwood and um, Marilyn Robinson, Sarah Waters, etc. Um, you know, you've got to, you've got to stay relevant as a publisher, especially as a political publisher. And so you need a wide range and you need, a, you know, the other th the other thing that people are doing in publishing so much more now, which is really good, is we're being alive to diversity. And um, that's a really, you know, who gets published, who who are the gatekeepers of publishing, who decides gets publishing, who, you know, I've written about this, that the idea, the fact is, as an editor, you're the first gatekeeper, basically. So the manuscript arrives to, to you and you decide whether you think there's a market for that. Now, how are you going to decide whether there's a market to that? It, obviously, the first thing is, do you like it? So who are you? <laughs> you know, as I said, if you're a white middle-aged person, you know, you're going to like, there's going to, you're, you're going to have particular um, knowledge, experiences, whatever. And so you need a broad range of editors who are, um, who are taking on those books, who are saying, yes, there's a market to that. And I think fabulously, wonderfully, at last, publishing is actually waking up to the fact that, you know, the, the, the way, the model, the old model, which, you know, was mainly, when I came into publishing, was mainly male Oxbridge, you know, who, who published their friends, basically. Um, now we're, we're waking up to the model that that, that doesn't work. And, you know, the, the, I mean, my feeling is that it's social movements who change publishing. You know that so you know publishing can say it wants to change, but actually, wh why it changes? Feminism changed publishing, the um, LGBTQ plus changed publishing. Black Lives Matter is changing publishing because the readers and the authors demand that publishing changes. You know, and that it's it is only the big social movements that really really rock the industry. It seems to me. We're coming up against the end of our time, but I had a final question, which was about when Virago was taken over, when it moved from being a, an independent to being part of a, a large corporate publisher, how, how did that change things? And from having worked on both sides of, of that fence, what are your feelings about, about how those different parts of the industry work? Well, I mean, the thing about publishing, you know, as we were talking about the 80-20 and, you know, who knows where the hits are going to come and all that sort of stuff, all of publishing is a risk, whether you're a tiny um, independent in your back bedroom or whether you're a conglomerate. Um, so the risk never changes. What does change, of course, is the cushion, you know, the, you know, that what you've got behind you. So when we were independent, for example, and, a, and a, we would do our budgets and then an author would ring up and say, I can't deliver till next year. After all, we were like, you know, that was going to be really, really hard. So it's it's hard to manage the, the finances as an independent. So obviously going to a larger publishing house gives you that kind of cushion. What I think could have been bad is we could have gone to a larger publishing house that decided they wanted us to be different. And they didn't. So going to Little Brown, and which is owned by Hachette, has always been, Hachette and Little Brown have always been a publishing house that respects the idea that there are different publishing houses for different different reasons and that a variety of publishing experiences and publishing um, 
books is going to to serve you. So I think the fact is Virago was fully formed. You know, we, we were already uh, over 25 when we got there. And so they knew what, who we were. They knew who we, we enhanced, enhanced their publishing, frankly, um, rather than us coming, you know, crawling in saying, please save us. So I think, you know, the, 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 that kind of dynamic made it clear that who, there was never any idea of asset stripping or anything. I mean, what you do give up, of course, is um, you have to convince more people. You know, in a small publishing house, you turn around and probably say to your, to your partner, I think this is great, and the other partner goes, okay, let's publish it. You know, in a bigger publishing house, you go to a, a meeting and there's a table full of probably 25 people who you've got to convince. So, you know, the, the hurdle possibly is greater. But what you do also then get, which is why I was I was keen that we went to Little Brown, is you get a global, you get the might. You know, as I was saying earlier, you get a, you get a global reach. You know, we suddenly started selling a lot more cop books in export, for example. But also you get, um, you know, as as the world as the world of book selling becomes more monolithic, you need might to get into Waterstones, to get into Amazon, etc. So. You know that's what we we are a product of how the publishing has changed, um, but because we have a, had a strong identity, um, there wasn't a sense of that it needed to we needed to change the kind of books we published. So for us, I would say it's been a great experience. It, that's obviously not true for everybody, and and there are, you know we're the only of the original feminist publishing houses that got set up in the seventies. We're you know we're all, we're unique, aren't we? So it was, um, it's, not, it's not a move everybody was able to make easily. A final question for me, because we are very much at our time limit, but you wrote that you've made mistakes as well as good choices and you've taken unpopular decisions. Can you tell us about any of them? Ooh, that's not a good end. <laughs> um, well, you can fix you can fix on the good choices if you want. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, I, I mean, I think it, actually, you know, it's thanks, Rachel. I don't mind actually asking that question because I think with publishing comes a responsibility, and one of the responsibilities is that you, you know, we're okay. We're politically motivated. We're literary, literarily motivated. Whatever, however, to say that we're motivated by good literature and quality literature. But you're all, we're also business. And so you have a responsibility to your authors, you know, to stay alive, to pay their bills, to, to, you know, to pay their advances, to pay them properly as best you can. You have a responsibility for the people you, who you employ. And so with that kind of responsibility also comes, cho you know, choices like having to, you know, at one point we had to make people redundant, for example. That probably is the worst thing I've ever had to do. Obviously, it's way worse to be made redundant, so I'm not going to own that um, as a, a, my own pain, but um, it, that's a pretty grim thing to do. But it does come. You can't just have power without responsibility and without, you can't run a business without taking some tough decisions, and that's what I meant about doing you know, some, of the, some of the tough things. Um, the good decision, I'll put a good decision on the end, was... Um, I would say someone like Marilyn Robinson. So this is again, this is the good thing about being, you know, in publishing for a long time. I had read Marilyn Robinson's book, Housekeeping. I don't know if you've read that novel. It's the most wonderful, one of my top 10 novels. And I'd read it years ago and I wanted to publish her. And I kept going to her agent in America and saying, if, there's, if she ever um, wants to change, she was at favor. If she ever wants to change, 
could um, she please, could I please have a chance? And um, she then turned in the beginning of Gilead. And to be frank, I couldn't quite understand what was going on. And obviously, they, you know, Faber made an offer, but they, the agent didn't think it was good enough. And she knew that I was in the wings saying, I will always publish her. And I got hold of it and I thought, I don't know what's going on in this book. But what I do know is anyone who could be the genius who can write housekeeping is definitely going to write a good book. So I just, I just sort of blagged my way through the editorial meeting saying, She'll, it'll be brilliant. And, and I just gave them like two paragraphs cause, so nobody else could see that I didn't know what was going on either. And I was right. <laughs> that was the thing. That was a good move. That was a good instinct. That's a lovely note to end on. We are, we are over the end of our time, but it's been a, a fascinating discussion. And Lenny, wishing you all the best um, with your projects going forward. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you. Thank you for asking such good questions. was the always take notes interview with lenny goodings you can follow her on twitter at lenny underscore virago and her book a bite of the apple is published by oxford university press hello it's us again simon what was your main takeaway from our chat with lenny i really enjoyed talking to her actually um she was out in the in the wilds of canada in her in her sort of remote uh holiday place and i thought it was fascinating clearly she's you know lived and worked through such a a huge time of change but I also and development in in British publishing but also she just seemed to me a kind of very warm and empathetic woman who also you know nonetheless had a clearly very sharp um, editorial and and kind of critical eye but you got a sense of why you know she'd been such a champion to the the writers that she was working with what about you? Mm. And I would really recommend um, A Bite of the Apple her book to any listeners who are interested in the history of Virago and I think generally learning more about how the sort of publisher author relationship works the the chapter that we discuss um about editing is definitely worth a read for for anyone who wants to understand more about that yeah she's definitely someone who who has also kind of thought quite hard about her her trade and her Mm. uh her work as well uh anyway Rachel what have you what have you been up to outside the podcast ah nothing of note Simon how about you I've been quite busy. I've been working on the paperback revisions for my book and trying to finalise this uh, new proposal, which I've, I've given myself a deadline at the end of next week for. So with luck, that will, that will get done fairly soon. Anyway, this has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Aiken. And me, Rachel Lloyd. Our producer and social media editor is Artemis Irvin. Our graphic design is by James Edgar and our score is by Jess Danheiser. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Always Take Notes, on Twitter at Take Notes Always. If you'd like to support us on our crowdfunding page on Patreon, we're on there as Always Take Notes. And if you'd like to get in touch with us on Twitter or via our website, please do. Many thanks. Bye.